0: Welcome to the Faith Element Podcast for the February 26, 2023 session, focusing on Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19, Problematic Texts. I'm David Cassidy.
1: I'm Nikki Hardiman.
0: I'm Burt Montgomery.
2: And I'm David Adams.
0: Well, we are still uh, wishing uh, Daniel Glaze a healthy return and look forward to seeing him again, but we are also excited to have David Adams back with us today. Thank you. Of course, with David, we we all look forward to his intros, because we know that the early part of the intro is always peppered with (laughs) humor, song references, obscure film references. You never know what you'll find in there. They
1: may be more than peppered.
0: (laughs) We might have had a glimpse.
1: We may have.
0: (laughs) Well, speaking of things that are hard to explain, I wonder what sort of things you uh, find difficult to explain to people. Well, I'll be honest
3: because it's, it's, I have a, I have difficulty explaining the Bible, God, faith, Jesus, and the Spirit and church stuff to people. Um, because I just want to go, yeah, and just nod. Hmm. And, and people expect because I've been to seminary and I'm a pastor and all that stuff, I know everything. And I know a lot of what's in there and what's said. But for me, it's just sort of like, eh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's bigger, and, and I can't explain it. It's just you're not going to spew a systematic theology. No, <laughs> no, I, I do not. Just, there's nothing systematic about my theology, <laughs> if I even have a theology. <laughs> just you, just it, what about? It's it's kind of like what, what Wayland Jennings told Will Campbell when Will Campbell says, uh, "What do you believe? What do you believe?" And Wayland Jennings said, after a long pause, "Yeah." that's that's my that's you know so it's frustrating to people because i carry the title pastor
1: fair enough fair enough so for me um i can explain everything no i'm just kidding actually i really do struggle to explain things but one thing is i am adhd which i'm neurodivergent and trying to explain the challenges of being adhd is really hard because it's a lot of times it seems contradictory. The symptoms can be very confusing. Um, and I have a really hard time explaining to people that need to understand what that experience is like. And so it's really wonderful when there's somebody who just gets it.
2: <laughs> Odd because I've, I've found it somewhat easy to explain having Asperger's syndrome
1: okay the
2: other side of being neurodivergent
1: it is it is (laughs) actually people with asperger's and autism are the ones who started the movement for neurodivergency
2: because we explain it well I, i don't know but what i have trouble explaining to people sometimes is um how to properly fix things on your computer when they don't work especially or how to teach using electronic methodologies I can explain them quite well, but for some reason, they never seem to hear that. And so I'm back re-explaining it over and over and over and over again. So I I must be bad at it because for some reason, they just don't seem to hear me.
1: Huh.
2: So I
0: did not come up with this lead-in question. Yes, you did. No, I did not. David Adams did. No, I did.
1: <laughs> oh! <laughs> he did. <laughs> My bad. I take it this back. I'm sorry. This is intentional, <laughs> I bet.
0: Yeah, no, I would never pick a question I couldn't answer readily. <laughs> um <is> scary. <laughs> So I have had to struggle with this a little bit. I think what I would say, one, is that I don't think about myself as having trouble explaining things very often. That doesn't mean I'm good at it. It just means I don't struggle with it. I I can make stuff up. (laughs) But where where the limits of that uh, show up are around mechanical things. My dad, for example, could take tools and make or fix just about anything. And it terrified me because I had no idea what he was doing, how it worked, or how he was going to put it back together. And even to this day, if I take the car to the shop, talking to the mechanic is terrifying because I have no idea how any of this works. And I don't really want to know. (laughs) Right? (laughs) So, which is probably a reason my wife hides the toolbox from me. (laughs) I'm not allowed to work on things.
1: Do you have to make the noise for the mechanic that your car is making?
0: Well, yeah, that part's fun. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it is you have trouble explaining, maybe we'll all have something to work on in that regard. Or maybe that's what makes us interesting. I don't know. <laughs> it could it could be a bit of both. Maybe. But David, uh, we've been waiting with bated breath for your intro, so take it away. Okay. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Every now and then we encounter things in life that we can't explain. I don't mean those old jokes like why we drive on a parkway or park in a driveway. Now, I believe that there are more serious questions out there that mystify us all. What happened to Virginia's Lost Colony? Where are we most likely to find life in outer space? Who really thought that Pete Best belonged with the rest of the group? Who let the dogs out? Why mullets? (laughs) Of course, there are those among us who have answers to questions that might baffle others. The sky is blue due to the diffraction of light as it enters our atmosphere. Before they downsized them, it took approximately 214 licks to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop. The language of the Mayan culture was not actually Mayonnaise, though perhaps it should have been. And Ringo is cooler than Pete. Naturally, those of you who have had to answer to younger people already know the most important explanation for things, because I said so. My mother covered a wide array of explanations with that phrase, and it beat out some of the competing explanations like, because God made it that way, or it's all part of a great design, or there are some things we were not meant to know. Of course, there's another good option, but I'll get to that in a minute. When you think you're reasonably well-educated, you can sometimes fall victim to a desire to explain everything, even when no one asked you to. The concepts you're engaged in exploring can get so compelling to you that you just have to talk about them. And so there you go, trying to explain things. Sometimes people do it in an insensitive, dismissive, and pedantic way, which is a nice way to describe things like mansplaining, or whitesplaining. At other times, people tend to seek to prove the old saying that those who know the least know it the most loudly. Still others channel their inner Cliff Clavin and take wild swings at explaining things, as if their sense of self-worth is tied to being seen as a person who has answers of a sort. And then there's Paul. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, You might note that we sometimes get a bit frustrated with how Paul tries to explain things that are obviously important to him, but leave our brains tied in knots. He's really passionate about the things he wants to say, but wow! There are laws against treating people the way he sometimes treated logic. I'm sure that he really cares about the people who read his letters, and he was completely earnest about trying to convey some difficult concepts. I'll even grant you that quite a bit was lost in transcription and translation over the years. Still, there are times when you almost wish you could grab the microphone and tell Paul to stop talking before he makes things any worse. The second half of the fifth chapter of Romans might be one of those times. There are so many verses in there that spin us in circles, and they open us up for inexplicable interpretations. What are we supposed to make of all this? He's trying to explain something about how salvation works, I guess. But the route he's taking to get there looks about as clear as mud. Worse for us is the fact that all this circular thought opens the door for people who are looking to pick at a specific verse that they can use to run off and invent the next confusing theological fad. No sin without the law? Great! Then the law must be a bad thing since it's keeping us from being immortal. Sin coming into the world via one guy? Great. Now, who are all those people who did not sin in the likeness of Adam, as Paul says? Worse yet, it seems like he's arguing about sin and grace both being universal conditions. How are we going to explain that to all the people who say that there is only one way to God's grace, which they personally know? I'm not ranting here about how one interprets this passage, though. I know there are many competing interpretations. I'm just questioning whether this is the best way to get across whatever point Paul is trying to make here, and wondering whether the explanation he gives here really explains much. Apparently, Paul is trying to commit theology, which is a serious offense in some countries, and much of his laborious explanation comes back to the larger point he was making before he wandered off into these weeds. Jesus gives us a reason to feel that we can stand in God's presence and receive God's grace. Those people who have hang-ups about how bad people are, or about how our predilection towards brokenness has held us back throughout history, or about whether it was Jesus' mission to reach everyone rather than a chosen few, should know that he indeed includes everyone. I'm not sure why Paul struggled to get that point made. A few weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus came as the fulfillment of the law. And maybe we would have been better served to explore this message first, if only for the context it provides. After all, isn't Paul trying to make the same point, albeit in a more tortured form? Maybe we should let Paul off the hook here. Grace is a tough subject. Everyone struggles from time to time with the question of why they do things they shouldn't. Everyone is seeking an answer as to why God should love them so much that grace comes to them as well. Many of us are looking for an answer to the question of why grace comes to those people instead of being limited to the people who look, talk, act, and think like us. Maybe Paul should have fallen back on the thoughts he shared with the Corinthians and reminded the Romans that all of this is something that we view through a dim glass and can't fully know for now. That's the other good answer, by the way, I don't know. Maybe he could have improved on that by saying, God's grace is complicated and we really don't know how that works out for everyone, and then invited them to work it out for themselves with fear and trembling. As he says to the Philippians later in his life, can we learn to say such things? Can we say grace is complicated and I'm not sure what to make of it? What do you think? Is it really so hard to admit that God is beyond our attempts to explain and categorize? Or is the hard part those times when we have to admit that God might offer grace in a way that we personally don't understand or endorse? Maybe our takeaway from this passage might go like this. God's grace is endless and surprising, and Jesus Christ opened the way for us to perceive and accept it, both for ourselves and for others. God's concept of grace is so vast that it doesn't leave anyone out. Is yours?
3: Well, now that I'm kind of sorting through beyond the Beatles references and the Cheers references and, oh my gosh. Anyway, thank you. And uh, you made me feel better about my answer to the opening question. (laughs) I don't know. How do I struggle to explain things? I don't know. That works out well, but I also appreciate how you worded, how hard it is for so many of us to, to understand Paul. I think, and the older I get, I think it was pretty hard for Paul to understand himself sometimes.
1: David, once again, you cause me to have compassion for Paul. Every time you come and talk about Paul, you make me just a little softer to him. It's a difficult concept that he's trying to explain. Um, And I think you're right. A lot of us would be more honest when we say, I don't
2: know. If you look at the context of the book, at least in terms of how we're looking at New Testament backgrounds, Mm
1: -hmm. there's
2: this idea that Paul has just flown off the handle. You know, he's known as a hothead. He's yelled at Peter in front of a bunch of folks. Now he's written this letter to the Galatians where he's even told people to go castrate themselves, you know, and he's just this angry, angry guy. And now he's trying to go to Rome and he's got to write something explaining himself to these people he doesn't know. You know, so so it, here he is trying to lay out these important concepts so they won't think he's a crazy man. And this passage comes in the midst of putting out a lot of things to help folks understand Judaism and how this is turning into a Christian religion. Mm-hmm. And so he's trying to phrase Christian things in Jewish terms, and that's not easy. You know, he's no. he's really struggling with this explanation. And sometimes I'm not a hundred percent sure he got there. I'm not sure he did either.
0: David I, I really appreciated that uh you have a way of um, saying the obvious things that maybe we sometimes are cautious to say for example this passage is really hard to understand and make sense out of and to follow the logic but you said it in a way that you know was both was kind of fun but also made a lot of sense because I think all of us have found these kinds of passages where we struggle and it was it was like you offered us a bit of a cliff notes for it. And sometimes that can be dangerous, but I think that the act of reading this passage, which you clearly did, but also seeking to really get at, what's he trying to say? You know, put aside the logic leaps or the twisted path, and just what is he really trying to convince us of? And, And I, you know, I ended up highlighting a couple of things you said. One was Jesus gives us reason to feel that we can stand in God's presence and receive God's grace that's that's really clear I wish Paul just said that um <laughs> or God's grace is complicated and we don't really know how it works out for everyone that's that's also pretty pretty clear so anyway thanks for the cliff notes and <laughs> and, and really for giving us permission I think to go ahead and say oh gone it this this doesn't make a lot of sense to me without some help.
2: And I think we run into trouble when we try to play along. Let's see if we can plug in what Paul's saying here and see what you make of that. Because when you read this passage in a more traditional sense, you got a lot of people who are now arguing, well, is this an argument for universalism? Because right here, Paul said everybody, you know, and they'll, they'll just pick different things out of this and get all excited about them. Uh, when you don't have a good strong answer, when you see something that looks a little bit muddy, it's a lot easier to project your answers into it. Mm. Yeah.
3: You said I want to go back to something you said um, and see because I think this would be f- wonderful conversation uh, for for churches to have. This a paragraph that you said. I'm we're I'm I have access to his notes, listeners. <laughs> 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 He's braver than I am. I don't give him access to my notes when I go <laughs> to <laughs> um, No sin without the law. Great. Uh, law must be a bad thing. Da, 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 da. Sin coming into the world via one guy. Great. Now, who are those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam, as Paul says? Um, say more about that. Does Paul acknowledge, are you saying Paul acknowledges? I'm asking as devil's advocate, as your common everyday Sunday school member. Are you saying Paul acknowledges that there are those who, you know, here we say Adam sinned, all of us sin because of Adam. But does Paul say elsewhere that there are
2: those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam? Yes. It's literally in that passage, Paul says this. And this passage is often used to support the idea of original sin. Yes. You know, that, that, which, which is interesting because in Jesus's teachings, he's always talking about how you don't inherit your sin from your parents. You know, it, it's not passed down. He has this big fight with the Pharisees over that exact point. Mm-hmm. So, for Paul to talk in that direction, it's clearly a direction he I don't think he wants to go. It's not consistent with Jesus' teachings. Mm-hmm. You know, so, to come back and later talk about how, well, there were those who didn't sin in the, in the uh, way of Adam, the follower, he was trying to make the point that before there was the law, there was still death anyway, but we all had death. Death comes from sin. And so, in fact, I could, if you want it here, I yeah, can look no, it up. Yeah, that, no, that's perfect
3: because so many of us in our in a wide variety of, at least in Protestant tradition, this is something we all have been told in many different, you know, denominational settings, we get sin through Adam, and there's nothing we can do about it. Right? Yeah. And and Paul, because Paul says so. <laughs> Jesus says, you know, Jesus is the new Adam, and that's the end of it. And it's as you said earlier, it's not that simple. Our theolo- we make our theology, we get so hung up on idolizing our theology. If somebody gets something that flows a certain way and makes every, crosses every T and dots every I and makes all the lines fit up, then we've got it. <laughs> uh, and 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 we look to Paul to do that because Paul likes to do that a lot. Yeah. But it's bigger. Just like we talked last week with the Transfiguration, Paul's theology is bigger even than Paul's own theology. And he says that, like you talked about the glass darkly. So I just, I think that's a good time for us to remember that uh, it is so ingrained in so much of our religious teaching that maybe, hey, it's bigger than Adam sinned and we're all doomed. And, and give us permission to talk about that a little bit more. And that even right. Paul, who we quote to prove that, goes beyond
2: that. Right. You get in verse, verses 12 through 14, and it's just a tangled bunch of knots. You know, but if you're looking to put something on them, this is a great place to stick in whatever theological points you want to make. Because who can say no? It's it, there's a line from Blazing Saddles where the guy says, "Now that's some true, authentic frontier gibberish, right there." <laughs> you know, and, and I think that this is this hey, some man, true man. Pauline gibberish right here. You know, that <laughs> rubbish. You know, it's <laughs> just like you hear this guy <laughs> saying it. But yep. but in Paul's other moments when he's being personal and talking about what he really thinks and trying to explain some things from a more in a more personal and not a theological way, he he comes right out and says things like "I don't really know. We'll all find out eventually. Let's work this out for ourselves."
1: Hmm. Listening to this conversation, it actually made me think of the Book of Leviticus. Um, I love how you know David was saying David Cassidy was saying earlier that kind of this overall picture of what Paul is trying to convey even if we can't fully understand the how it happens we can know the what happens and that is that God's grace is available for all of us and in the book of Leviticus you know that is the law book that is where we have kind of this um this list of laws that are trying to help us understand the Ten Commandments, essentially, like how do we live these out in a daily life, or at least in that context. But before the law is given in the book of Leviticus, the ceremonies and the holidays are talked about, including the Day of Atonement. And I think the order in which those are given is not a coincidence. I think we are given Knowledge about the day of atonement. Because God is saying, I don't expect you to keep every one of these perfectly. It's not going to be perfect. You have grace from the beginning. This is the way to live. And when you don't meet it, know there is grace. And I think that has been true about God from the very beginning.
0: So this whole conversation has kind of wandered in and out of this conversation about theology, right? And, and sometimes we think of theology as this ivory tower activity and it can be. but it it also it also can be much more down to earth. And I I remember my first introduction to theology proper was in college. I was a religion major <laughs> and philosophy. And my first course in uh, what they called, I think, Christian Theology or something, one of the textbooks has continued to be a book I have held on to and refer back to from time to time. It was written in 1974. And, yet, and so, yeah, a lot of it's dated. I wouldn't agree with everything in it, but I like his approach. And I think it relates to this passage because our conversation has been both about our desire to think about God and the limits of our ability to think about god and express those thoughts and about sometimes our need to impose those on others <laughs> and so the the title of the book is called thinking about god it's mm-hmm. written by fisher humphreys a delightful gentleman yes
1: it's a great book it, it, i read really, that in seminary too did you really a <laughs> uh, mississippi so, yeah.
3: native mississippi yes.
1: native
3: yes went yes. to college with my mother really mississippi oh, cool.
0: college with my mother sure did so On the first page of the first chapter, he says, Theology is a word used in so many different ways that it's foolish to argue about how it ought to be used. People are entitled to use it in different ways if they wish. What I can do is tell you how I intend to use it. I use it to mean thinking about God. And when we are thinking about God, we are doing theology. And he goes on to give some more depth on that across the next uh, you know, 13, 14 pages. But then he concludes with a paragraph about what it's not. <laughs> and here's how he says it. He says, so theology is more than learning. It is thinking. But it is not the kind of thinking which gives us control over our subject. As when a physicist reflects upon ways to make electricity work. Nor is it the kind of thinking which dispels all mystery, as when a detective discovers from reflecting on the clues that the butler committed the crime. It is rather the kind of thinking that helps us understand a friend better. We do not think about our friend in order to control that person, for we wish not to control him, but to relate to him personally. Nor do we suppose that We will understand our friend fully, for there are depths in all human personalities that we cannot fathom. But we seek to understand our friend because we love them. And we seek to understand God because we love God. Jesus spoke of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Theology is loving God with your mind. So as you discuss this and other troublesome passages, (laughs) I hope you'll take to heart Fisher Humphrey's words about what theology in his mind is about. That to me makes a lot of sense. Thank you all for this good conversation.
1: Thank you. you. you.
0: Learn more about our Faith Element Bible Study curriculum at faithelement.net Faith Element is a service of Faith Lab.